Hi, I'm Logan Rice. And I'm Andrew Hargett. And you've joined us on To the Choir Master, a podcast examining our heart posture in musical worship. This week, we are looking at the song Battle Belongs by Phil Wickham, released in 2020. Yeah, our church has been playing this song a lot. It's number one on multitracks.com right now, so we must not be alone in playing the song frequently. The YouTube video has over 2 million views. It gets a lot of radio time. Andrew, this song is getting a lot of love, and, and Phil Wickham definitely wrote a good song, uh, and so I'm excited to kind of look into what it is today. Yeah, yeah. just for kicks, I, I hopped over to the YouTube video. The music video was for it, and I thought, I'll scroll through the comments and see what people are saying, which I think is always a dangerous uh, task to look at. You know, you never know what people are going to comment on YouTube videos. <laughs> Uh, there was plenty of comments where you're like, you know, how does this relate at all to any of this? Uh, a lot of just, you know, comments on, you know, this song's amazing or the music video is aesthetically pleasing. Um, but I had, I had it sorted by top comments and uh, a couple of the very top comments actually caught my eye. Um, so I thought I'd share some of those just to see what people are saying. So when, when I viewed it, the very top comment was someone where they shared that they lost their job. And then a month later, they got a call for a better job. And so then they were encouraging everybody that, hey, just like God fought my battles for me, he'll fight your battles for you. And then the fourth comment down, um, you know, it said, and I'll quote this one, you may feel down and broken through life's journey, but you are like a glow stick. When it breaks, it then shines. God has not forgotten about you. You're about to shine. Hmm. So those are that's what people are saying. You know, those are the top rated comments on this video. Uh, that's what people are saying that this song is about and that's encouraging. And so I think the question for us as we look into the lyrics and look into scripture more is to say, you know, are these comments true? Is this really what the Bible teaches? And is this even what the song is teaching? And so as we go through it, you know, I think this is maybe one of the predominant views for what this song is looking at. But it'll be interesting to look at it and see is that what where truth is found when all i see is the battle you see my victory All right, well, Andrew, you know, kind of piggybacking off on how you concluded the intro, I completely agree with you on the uh, the YouTube comments and that being such a popular consensus for these songs. There's there's a lot of ministries, honestly, that are centered around this idea of a a healing is coming so long as X Y Z happens, or if you put your belief in X Y Z, or if you pay your money to X Y Z, and and you know we, we have all these things and. And then you see those married with YouTube comments where in one form or another, people are agreeing with this. Yeah. And, and there's two ends of the spectrum of, we'll actually never see a victory. We'll always, you know, our only victory will be eternity. And then you have the other end of the spectrum where we, we must see these things because God loves us. And I feel like we talk about this over and over again, but it, it keeps popping up in the songs that we're looking at especially in the songs that we're singing congressionally with other people, singing along in accordance with them. Um, and there's a right way and a wrong way to see this, especially with words like my modifying victory, right? We're claiming that when we see a battle, 
you know, God sees our victory. When we see a mountain, God sees a mountain moved out of our way. Is that the right or wrong way to see this at a surface level? Right, yeah. Well, I would say that there are definitely, like you said, a right and a wrong way. The, yeah. Look, Focusing kind of first on that wrong way, that would be where if we're believing that this means that every battle will ultimately look like victory in a worldly sense. Yeah. So basically, if we say, hey, every sickness will be healed, or like that top commenter who said, I lost my job, then I got a better job. So if you lost your job, you're going to get a better job. That, yeah. Right. So if we think that every job loss leads to a better job or that every time we have a financial loss, that that's going to be restored. Um, I think that that's part of the, the wrong way to look at it is to say that we, because we saw how God moved in one circumstance, that means that that victory will always look like this. Yeah. And there's a couple of problems with that way of, of looking at it and thinking about it. Um, you know, one, it's, it's false. Um, it's not mm. true. Um, and, Partially because it's false, it becomes unhelpful. And because it's unhelpful, it's actually distracting from the, from the real truth. So. Yeah. yeah, I think we're tempted to, you know, model the American cinematography movie style of, of life where there's a problem or a conflict, that problem reaches ahead, which would be your job loss or your, you know, your big mountain that's in front of you. And then ultimately through perseverance and determination – that problem is gone. And, and I even find that that is something that as a, um, a culture or even as a church we do with stories in the Bible. We champion the stories where the good guy comes out as the victor. And we don't often highlight the stories where actually it didn't really look like a victory. Um, I mean, you see this with Paul in the New Testament. He wrote, um, you know, he talked about the thorn in his flesh. And then you look at David in the Old Testament and his son, born from Bathsheba, was sick. And, and ultimately, Paul did overcome the thorn in the flesh, so in a sense there was a victory over it, but we don't really have any indication of what that thorn was and um, whether you know, it went away or whether it was just, hey, actually the thorn isn't that important, so I'm going to put my, put my focus on Christ. And so that's a type of victory in and of itself. But when you look at David's newborn son, who was born out of adultery. I mean, the whole story behind that was David falls in love with Bathsheba, sends Uriah the Hittite out on the front lines to ultimately die. And then Bathsheba has this son and was really sick. And and ultimately, because of um, it being born out of adultery, God allows for the, for the son to die. And, you know, in a sense, there is a victory in this. Uh, it foreshadows and helps us prepare for Christ, who would bear the judgment of an adulterous people, who would be the son of the king rather than just uh, you know, King David. Uh, there's also a victory in the sense that God used the death of this son to correct his chosen king of Israel uh, from turning further and further into sins of the surrounding nations. Uh, you know, constantly in First Kings and Second Kings, we see this person was, did things that are good in the sight of the Lord. This, this person did uh, things that were evil on the side of the Lord. Th- this could have been a reminder to kind of turn David back on that path. Um, you know, there's also things out there that say that if, if this first son born of Bathsheba would have lived, that there could have been some conflict of, well, was this David's son or was this Uriah's son, which would have honestly 
kind of mess with the lineage of Christ and cause a lot of uh, maybe uncertainty if Christ did come from the king's lineage. Um, and and so, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, that's a lot of context for this right here, which is David prayed and fasted for healing. David, the man after God's own heart, who God had chosen to be his king out of all the sons of Jesse, who had really no place in a worldly sense of being there. This man prayed and fasted for healing, and his son still died. And there are honestly probably just as many stories of this in the Bible than there are the stories of being delivered from the lion's den or taking down your Goliaths. And it is true in the sense that there is ultimate victory, but this idea that every battle is going to be a victory and every mountain is going to be one moved in a worldly sense— that in the end, it'll all be restored, and it won't just be restored. It'll be restored better than it was before. Your first job, you're making 40K and you lose it. Guess what? When you get your new job, you're going to make in 75K. That's just not true in all reality. And, and I think, you know, leading to your next point, I think if we keep this idea, man, it's incredibly unhelpful to the body. Yeah, because uh, part of what, what's missed with the and it, it being false is is it uh, shifts the focus onto us and away from Christ. Yeah. And so all both of those examples that you gave, like all those things that you listed out for David and the victories, those are all very Christ focused, right? Those mm-hmm. are on the preparing us for Christ and protecting the lineage of Christ, on keeping the kingdom intact so that Christ can come. Those are all to David would not have looked like the victory he was praying for. Right. But and, and same thing with Paul, you know, Paul's, we don't have any indication that his thorn was removed. In fact, quite the opposite, but he, he even declares it as a victory because he says, I can magnify Christ through my weakness in this. Right. So, and even, sorry to interrupt, but just even thinking about Christ on the cross. I mean, it, it, when you're, when Christ is in the garden, what would be considered the victory there mm-hmm. Where, it, of him sweating so profusely that there's blood coming out? There's clearly anguish here. What, what's the victory? The cup being removed? Well, ultimately, no. But in our eyes, um, probably not going to the cross to die would be the victory, yet it wasn't. It's, and it was Christ-focused. So sorry, I just, just had to throw that out there. Yeah, you're absolutely <laughs> right. And so the problem with that, all that, you know, that not being a real concept taught in the Bible, and the problem with us holding on to that is it actually makes it unhelpful. So, yeah. you know, whenever we sing about this type of stuff or if we teach this type of stuff in our churches— we're often doing those things because it makes us feel good. It makes us feel like, hey, we're helping people by encouraging them. So like, you know, you post your YouTube comment, you say, hey, I'm helping people by encouraging them. You know, if they lost a job, I'm going to tell them you're going to get a better job. And everybody loves to be the person that says, it's okay. It's going to turn out even better for you. Yeah. Um, but in fact, the problem is it's not offering help or hope because if we assure someone that God's going to heal them and then he doesn't, or we assure them, hey, you're going to get that better job, and then they don't. Yeah, you know, we can actually cause the them more harm than good. You know, yeah. we might actually rock their faith uh, because we've caused them to incorrectly ground it in the things of this world rather than in eternity with Christ. Yeah, yeah, and and thirdly, uh, you know, very similar to it being unhelpful, it's just distracting. I mean, you're you're creating a conflict where you have two distracting, quote-unquote, truths coming to a head. Um, you know, one truth is helpful, and it gives hope, and the other is unhelpful, and it gives a, a false sense of hope. Because ultimately, here's the thing. What happens 
when that person doesn't get that better job that they've been encouraged by. Now you're looking back and you're pointing the finger and saying, man, this Christianity thing isn't actually what it's all cracked up to be. If your foundation of faith in Christianity is when I'm going through a negative time, Christ is going to be the positive time that pulls me out of it. And that definition of positivity is getting your job back or you know whatever it may be. That that's a false hope, and it's distracting, and it's distracting from from the gospel is what it's distracting from. And so, this hope that we believe in is that we are eternal beings with a hope for an eternal future with Christ. And if our entire life here on Earth is just one singular just job loss, you know, in in a way, the the good news is, is that you know. We're going to get 60, 70, 80 years. If you're really healthy and have great genetics, you're going to be up in the 90s and 100s. And that is so short in comparison to eternity that we're going to look back and be like, man, remember when we were worried about that thing for 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? And so, man, this idea that everything we face is going to be um, you know, something that we see removed from us, the cup being removed, if you will, is, is distracting to what the gospel is in and of itself. And... and you know, kind of transitioning, this line isn't necessarily wrong. We're just we're just kind of looking at the wrong way to look at it. So yeah. there is a positive light of this line that does work biblically. Yeah, that was my thought. I was like, I don't want to sound like we're <laughs> bashing this song because yeah. I don't know what Phil Wilkin was thinking, but I you know, I don't think that this line in itself is bad. I just I think it is helpful to see though, when you scroll through those YouTube comments, this is the direction a lot of people go with it. Yeah. Um yep. And so, but there is, that doesn't mean that it's wrong. There is a right way to sing this. And that's, that's where we get at is ultimately all of our words are at least a little bit ambiguous. And, you know, whenever you're, whenever you're trying to fit them into a certain meter and a certain rhyme, they can only be so good. And so that's why it's so important that our hearts are correct because at the end of the day, it's not up to Phil Wickham to make sure that we are all singing this with the right heart. He can Mm. put great lyrics and you could still sing them wrong. That's good. And, um, but there, because of, there is a right way to biblically sing these lines. And so I think, you know, certainly the one a lot, a lot of people would probably turn to is Romans eight twenty eight, which is honestly a little bit used and abused, but um, yep. <laughs> it's, you know, that's where it talks about, you know, that all things will work together for good. Um, but my personal favorites to give hope, to give the hope that, you know, yes, you're seeing a battle, but God is seeing a victory would be uh, two different passages um, that are maybe a little less common than that one. Uh, so one would be in Second Corinthians four seventeen, Second Corinthians four seventeen, and really those all those surrounding verses. I highly recommend people to go read that. We've read it a couple times off on the podcast, but uh, really it's, it talks about the preparatory nature of afflictions in our worldly life for a purpose in our eternal life. Hmm. And so basically, I think if we keep this in mind when we're singing lines like this in this song, we can remember that God is seeing out to an eternal victory where it's been won by Christ already and we're, we're going to be able to share in the spoils by being united in him. Yeah. And so, you know, the, uh, the second Corinthians passage is reminding us that each of those afflictions, each of those mountains, each of those battles are preparing us for that. They're actually helping us to draw closer and closer to Christ and helping us to, uh, I think ultimately in the future, see, look, be able to look back and see that all of those things were helping us to be uh, people that loved God more and understood yeah. him more. And so I think, you know, this verse, when you sing in the song, when you sing that, it, it can be reminding us that 
you know, we might be tempted to focus on the battle or the affliction, which Second Corinthians calls, you know, momentary or transient. But the the song then reminds you there's a greater purpose behind that battle because it it's already been won. There's already that victory that God has seen. The second passage I turned to that's very encouraging to me is Philippians 129. And uh, I brought this up a number of times on the podcast as well. Uh, but this is the passage that talks about how uh, it's, it's an interesting pairing of words of sufferings and granted. And it basically mm-hmm. says, you know, your sufferings have been granted to you. And that's every time I read that still, I'm like, what? You know, that's crazy. But um, really what we see is that our sufferings are granted to us. And if you back up on the passage a little bit it's granted us as a sign of assurance of our salvation so basically when we suffer uh, not just all suffering but when we suffer paired with standing firm with striving side by side for the gospel with not being fearful of our enemies um, that is a sign of assurance of our salvation so the same principle i think could apply when this song if you think of battles or mountains as suffering so you may see that mountain as, as just suffering or just a trial, but from an eternal perspective, that very mountain um, could actually be a means of removing hindrances from you seeing your assurance of your salvation. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way of looking at it, and something that, as you were speaking, really kind of meshed with my mind, too, is the, the right way, or, or maybe a way to read this, is what, what I see as a battle, God sees as a victory. And that doesn't, and that's not the removing of the battle. That's that from my, you know, mere lit, dimly sinful uh, human mindset. The battle that I see is actually what the victory that God sees. The mountain that I see is going to be that thing that molds me, shapes me, forms me to look more like Christ. Um, and so, man, looking through it through that lens changes the song. I mean, again, we, we see this so often. Our very first episode was on the song "Sea of Victory," mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of a similar mindset. And we said, and we we look at that song on April fourteenth of twenty twenty, which mm-hmm. you know peak panic time of what COVID nineteen is, and we're still trying to figure all this out. And we're all going, "What does this look like? How are we going to see a victory?" Does this mean that the victory is COVID-19 is removed? What does it even mean? Ultimately, at the end of the day, I think the main idea in in that song and in this song is this. Our afflictions are temporary, and the very afflictions that are in our lives could be the very thing that that are what God has intentionally put us there to to be an integral part of his love and, and to bring us to his glory. Um, and this is why we can sing about not fearing and walking through the shadows, uh, which is a clear call out to Psalm 23. But, but that table referred to is seen again in Revelation at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so uh, the, walking through the shadow of the valley of death, not fearing any evil, uh, does that mean that we're not going to have any fears in this life? No, but it means that in an eternal perspective, um, we will be with the Lamb on the throne, you know, worshiping him eternally. Yeah. And the psalmist in Psalm 23 talks about the rod and the staff comforting him, which is an odd idea because that rod and that staff are those battles. Those are the afflictions. That is this discipline and the sufferings. Those things are actually comforting him because he recognizes that rod and the staff are directing me ultimately to that marriage supper of the lamb. Yeah, that shepherd's hook isn't just a, you know, cool to hang around and basically be a really large cane. 
Um, you know, that's not padded. Yeah. yeah <laughs> that's that hook is wrapping around the sheep's neck and, and saying, no, we got to go this way. We got to go this way. And, um, you know, so often that, that direction changed in our lives. Seemingly that shepherd's hook around our neck can seem very abrupt yet those very things are directing us. And so the job loss could be the shepherd's hook around the neck saying, I don't want you at this job anymore. I want you to go this way. This is what I have for you. And, and what can seem as a battle um, to us really ultimately is victorious in God's eyes. And if you are for me, who can be against me? Jesus, there's nothing impossible for you. All right, well, um, looking for the second verse, my first thought that I have to get out there, which is very unrelated to this song, but um, when you read these lyrics out loud, the, the first line says, and if you are for me, who can be against me? Yeah. And, and reading out the lyrics without the music playing to me is it's it's hilarious it reminds me of those youtube videos i don't know if you've seen them where people pull all the music out of music videos but they leave in all the ambient sounds and the grunting so you have people like stomping around and uh anyways that's how i feel every time i read the lyrics and i just see like a yeah at the end of the first line anyways totally unrelated but we we just did a song this weekend and there's a whole slide just says singing oh 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 yeah. oh 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 yeah it's a great song it's like but that was a lyric slide in there it's like well, i don't even know what to do with that yeah i usually <laughs> ask I'm like can we pull that out of the slides like people will get it they'll they'll learn those, those words <laughs> but yeah this this first line you know that if you're for me who can be against me this is clearly being drawn out of uh, romans eight thirty one, but this is another one of those verses as with all of Romans, all of Romans, Paul is basically starting somewhere and he's moving through Romans with a continuous thought stream where there's arguments. Yeah. Uh, it's part of why, like, one of the best Bible study methods is arcing, where you look at how phrases relate to the ones before and after it. Mm. Um, and so this passage, it's important to keep the context in mind because the passage here is actually a little bit less about battles, maybe, and afflictions, and it's more about the court case uh, where the charges of our sin are being brought forth. And you actually see kind of in this area of Romans eight, like a full court case being built up where you have uh, God as a judge and you have the accuser and you've got, um, you know, Jesus Christ as your advocate and the Holy spirit as your advocate, things like that. And so when you put all of that together, that's where you really start to see, you know, if you're for me, who can be against me is talking about who can be, bring charges of sin against me if mm-hmm. Jesus Christ has already come uh, as my advocate for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. And another line that is similarly uh, probably needs just a little bit of unpacking would be, for Jesus, there's nothing impossible with you. And while that line is very true, there's nothing impossible for Jesus um, as seen by his ministry, as seen by his works, as seen by his miracles. Um you know, that brings my mind to, hey, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, another meme status is like, uh, you know, hey, you're actually been denied from this, or you can't do this. It's like, well, first of all, with all with God, all things are possible. Mm-hmm. You know, like you see that meme a lot. Yeah. But I think that meme 
often is a reflection, at least in some sense, of our thinking. And and what needs to be maybe just addressed here is in Matthew nineteen twenty six, that Bible verse is actually referring to salvation. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is kind of telling his disciples, "Hey, you know, it's it's more it's more possible for the uh, the camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get to heaven." You're like, well, then it's impossible to get to heaven because it's impossible to get the camel through the eye of a needle, right? Mm-hmm. And and Jesus says, well, you know, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And that really addresses the heart of salvation and us being raised spiritually from death to life is impossible for man to accomplish. But with God, all of these things are possible. The 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 camel can get through the eye of the needle, not because money is what paid his way through, but because Christ made a way um, in um, impossible circumstances. Yeah. Well, and let's let's pair these first two lines together, then, because I think it. If you take all of those contexts together, a, a lot of people think of, oh yeah, well, a rich person can get out of anything in a courtroom, right? Yeah. And and I think what <laughs> what you put all these together and with Jesus teaching, the disciples begin to see, hey, in the court case of heaven where the charges of sin are being brought forth, Jesus is saying that. A rich man can't pay his way out of that. And yeah. and so that's where they come and say, well, if a rich man can't pay his way out of that, and you tell us that the Pharisees aren't righteous enough to get out of that, it must be impossible. There's no way for man to be saved. And, mm-hmm. and that's where you ultimately see the beauty of the gospel that comes out where Jesus is that way in which things are made possible because there is yeah. nothing impossible for him because he sacrificed himself. He died on the cross for us. Hmm. That's good. You about to roll into Beauty and Ashes? I can. You want me to go from the, straight in that? Yeah. The The next line on, on you know, when all I see is the ashes, you see the beauty. I think this is maybe just a different spin on something we talked about at much more length in our Graves in the Gardens episode. So won't go into a ton of detail with that, um, but there's a lot of cool uh, Old Testament references and things like that mm-hmm. going on there. Um, but I do like the last line in this song, the, uh, when all I see is a cross, God, you see the empty tomb. I think maybe this line is best read thinking about it from the perspective of when Jesus was on the cross and the disciples didn't fully understand the plan yet. And Hmm. so at that moment, I imagine, you know, even my own reaction would be, that's it. He's on the cross. It's done. And, um, this is this line and and really the entire theme of the song is to help and point out that you know we don't know the ultimate plan but god does know it so even Mm -hmm. though we were looking at what's right in front of us right here now god planned the cross you see that so much throughout jesus life is that the cross was not a thing where he it happened and he's figured out oh here's how i can spin this and make this better the cross was a plan for the purpose of the empty tomb because the empty tomb mm-hmm. meant nothing without the cross and vice versa. So um, in the end, this, this whole song and all of this stuff about beauty and ashes and, you know, every line we sang in both verses is basically to say that God knows the plan and his plan is better than we could have imagined. So in the end, so we need to not so much focus on the, these light and momentary and transient afflictions and battles and mountains because we trust in our God. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think of the I think of the the physical battle in the Old Testament, where 
God ultimately takes down the army of I can't remember the dude's name. What's the what's the three hundred like ten ten thousand to three hundred? Whose army was that? I want to say it's just Joshua, but I, I, I don't feel confident enough. Gideon. Yeah. yeah, this makes me think to judges. I mean, in, in the physical battle of God instructing Gideon to minimize or reduce the size of his army from thousands upon thousands of soldiers to 300 and and that's that's a battle that doesn't make any sense right of hey we're about to go face this um the midianite armies that have thousands upon thousands of men and guys like all right here's what we need to do i need you to 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 shrink your army i need you to keep only the soldiers who lap up water with their tongues versus like dog you know all that fun stuff and that leaves gideon with 300 men and, you know, something that's interesting to think about is, you know, the soldiers that were removed from the army, they didn't necessarily do anything wrong. They just weren't meant to fight that battle. And I wonder what they're thinking in their head of like, man, they're, this, this is nuts. Like, and they're, they're walking away, and yet God made a way in that battle. Um, you know, again, that's ultimately for his glory. But the, the things that make sense to us, which would be, hey, we're about to go fight a large battle, let's get as many people as we can. That, that, that doesn't always make sense to, to the Lord. And, and ultimately, all that was to do was not show, hey, you can accomplish things that are seemingly impossible um, because if you have 300 soldiers, you know, like, hey, if, you're, if you feel like you're one of the 300 up against the 30,000, it can be pulled off. Yeah. Not quite the best way to interpret that, in my opinion. It would be, hey, just in case you needed any more evidence that this is God and God alone— an entire army was taken down with 300 soldiers because ultimately they didn't even fight. They just blew the trumpet and scared the Midianite army so much that they all just slaughtered themselves. So it's like, it's just that whole thing is is to show that um, it is God working in all this. It's nothing that we could do. Right. And, and that's the battle that belongs is, man, there are going to be things that don't even make sense to us. And all that's meant to do is to show, hey, in my own world, in my own eyes, this is where I would be. It's clearly not, which ultimately just means there's no glory I can take from this. It all goes to God. All right, so leading into the chorus, when I fight, I'll fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. And you know, kind of off, off air, if you will. I kind of made a joke about, you know, hey, I watch a lot of UFC. Is this is this talking about you know wrestling or grappling and trying to submit your enemy? And ultimately, it's not. Um, Andrew, what does it mean to to fight on our knees with our hands lifted high, surrendering the battle to the yeah, Lord? So- We've looked at a couple of songs with this type of concept in it. Surrounded would be a great example where it talks about this yep. is how I fight my battles. And, uh, it, you know, there's ideas of prayer or praise, things like that being used. And so I think that that's what this is referring to of a look at we fight our battles 
on our knees through prayer. So prayer, basically reaching out to God is the best means by which we fight. Um, but the interesting mm-hmm. thing about the knees aspect is that it's not just prayer, you know, or the idea of like a prayer warrior that you might would hear, but mm-hmm. it's actually mm-hmm. helping to convey the idea of submission that we are, we are yeah. fighting by submitting to God's will and saying our, that our prayers are not just a, I, I'm going to fight by praying and over and over and over and over again for God to turn this situation the way I want it. But it's rather, I'm going to fight by submitting myself, lifting my hands up in praise and submitting and saying, God, I recognize that your plan is better. Yeah. We don't see it often too much in our culture anymore of, of kneeling before authority. Um, but, but that's ultimately what this is, is, uh, you know, back in the day, back in the old Testament, you you know, you'd walk into the throne room of a King and you would, you would kneel. And that kneeling was an acknowledgement of you are higher than I am. Your ways are higher than mine. Your authority is higher than mine. Um, and this, this kneeling and surrendering is, uh, that to an eternal degree of God, your, your ways are greater. Your plan is greater. Your authority is greater. So I'm going to surrender this battle to you. Um, and the good news is we know that God is a good and just king. We're not surrendering to a king that we said, man, this, this person could be completely evil, but I'm going to surrender anyways because that's what I'm called to do is submit to my authority. No, man, we, when we surrender these to the Lord, we know that a good, faithful, just, righteous king is you know, going to fight those battles in our regard. Yeah. The, the chorus here is definitely a shout-out to 1 Samuel 17, 47, and that idea of battles belonging, uh, which is where we're starting to look at the idea of David and Goliath. And um, we've talked about that a, a number of times on the podcast before about, about the nature of what's going on with David and Goliath. But I think it's important for us to keep in mind and remember that the battle belonging to God is meant to be something that gives us a confidence in the progression of things. It's meant to be where we are able to submit to him, where we're able to lay those fears at his feet um, because we know that God's plan and his, his type of victory is ultimately the best one. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's important to talk about these things and address them um, you know, not only maybe with your worship team, but with your congregation as a whole. Uh, I mean, it's, when you think about the model of how a church is set up, you have people coming in who you don't really know where they're at. They could be, uh, um, you know, unbelievers searching for an answer. They could be, you know, grizzled veterans of of the faith and everything in between. And you know, this song sung to the unbeliever who just sees Christianity as improperly placed hope. What does he do when you sing a song about how every battle belongs to the Lord, yet he looks at a congregation and sees, you know, this happening or this suffering, or whatever it may be? It's like, well, how do these people believe in this? This is, this doesn't make much sense. I'm out, right? Um, yeah. And then there's also the Christian who comes in and you receive an emotional high by the promises of this song, and you say, yes, you know, the battle does belong to the Lord. I'm going to sing this out. And then when true suffering comes... Uh, man, it's just they just crash. They they the foundation that was built on this was an emotional high rather than you know true theology and belief in this. And and now you say this very thing that I was so emotionally invested in, that I was so adamant about attending and seeking out, and that consumed my listening habits and my 
um, you know, community habits. Where, where is that now? This is all pointless because the suffering still happened. And so if yeah. if we view these things, and, and you can't, you can't, you know, speak for everybody. You can't address every situation. But I think it's why it may be advantageous to, um, you know, maybe listen to an episode or two of ours before you sing a song or have a devotional um, with your worship team or, or spend five to ten minutes talking about a song with your congregation. Um, because a song is, I mean, again, we're, we're not, we're not, harping on the song. I think it's a great song. Um, we'll continue to sing it. But m- context out of place, this song, like every song ever, uh, you know, can be misconstrued in a way that, that probably puts us in a false mindset. So I think these things are good for us to look at, uh, you know, especially keeping in mind the first Samuel 1747 with how often it's, you know, well, we're the David and we're just facing our Goliath and we have enough faith we'll be able to slay him. Um, yeah, 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 you're you're about to shine. That's yeah. the idea, right? Like, so it's just like, it, no, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's definitely can be a little hazy there if with the idea of battles belonging, but but it's not untrue. The battle does belong to God, right? And in some cases, He is going to ch- uh, change things and win things the way that we would hope, you know, the way that we want. Um, there are people that are going to get that better job. And it's okay to pray for those things even. Yeah. It's okay to ask for that. Paul prayed for his thorn to be removed. David laid on the floor, prayed and fasted for days, waiting for God to heal his son. But the response, ultimately, when that didn't come, for both of them was to get up and go back out and fight. Yeah. And Paul went off and went and fought his battle with his thorn. David, everybody's looking at him like, why were you praying and fasting? And then suddenly you just stopped. Mm -hmm. And he's like, because God has already decided how this battle is going to be won. It wasn't the way I was chose to pray it. And so there's, there's no reason for me to sit and wallow in that. Instead, I'm going to move forward. And I think that's the part that we need to be able to understand is to say, ultimately we have been given to know the ultimate way the battle's been won. So Mm -hmm. even if it starts looking like, Hey, the way we're praying for and asking for, isn't going to turn out. That doesn't mean we turn to God in anger. That doesn't mean that we are, uh, you know, just wallow in self-pity. It means that we instead say, but at least I know Christ has already won in the thing in the battle that really matters. Yeah, and looking at the bridge, we we tee it off with the, this idea of God is our almighty fortress. Um, he him going before us, nothing can stand against the power of our God. And there's so many verses that describe God as our shield, as our refuge, as our protector. Um, Psalm 46, God is a refuge and strength. We should not fear. That's the conclusion, is we have this fortress, this almighty fortress that we can find our refuge and our hope in and our security in. And again, is it, is it a physical fortress? No, but spiritually, we know we are secure in every battle because we have God as our fortress, that is our refuge and our protector. Um, and I would contend that that protection, that refuge, is the protection of our salvation rather than the protection of our um, physical bodies. And that's seen all throughout of, you know, you think of these ideas that, man, once we are in Christ, nothing can pluck us from his hand. That's what I see this almighty fortress as, not as a, well, if you believe in God, you'll live 85 happy years and then um, you'll you'll sail off into the sunset. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, in that same vein of that first line of all made mighty fortress, you go before us. I love the parallels here between Old and New Testament. So just like yeah. how we might we think of an almighty fortress in the Old Testament as you know actual walls and cities, and then we see the more spiritual side of things in the New Testament. Same thing with you go before us. It, it's referenced a couple of times in Deuteronomy of saying you know God goes before you into battle. In Deuteronomy 130 and 318 both reference that. You see that throughout a lot of Old Testament battles, though, where God is physically going before them and in some cases wiping out the army and they just show up just to take the spoil. Yeah. Um, but I think that what's neat is that we can actually now take this to that ultimate battle of salvation again with Christ and see that Christ went before us. You know, the, the symbolism here being in baptism, that ultimately yeah. just as Christ you know, died, was buried and rose again. We symbolize that coming after him in baptism by being plunged beneath the waters and then mm -hmm. being raised back up out of it to symbolize and say, we are united with Christ who has gone before us, who stands now before that judge to be uh, our advocate before the father so that nobody can come yeah. against us, so that no battle uh, can be too overcoming for us, so that no mountain stands in our way. Yeah, that's great. And then we end this song with, you shine in the shadow, you win every battle. Uh, nothing can stand against the power of our God. The idea of shadows is found in James 1, 17. And then just, just concluding with, you win every battle. Ultimately, at the end of the day, what we're getting at with this song is that the ultimate battle uh, is sin and death. And Christ has won that battle. He has gone before us. He has lived a perfect life. He went to the cross, died, was resurrected, ultimately conquering death. And because of that, we have hope in that. And we are reconciled to the Father by believing because we are covered with that blood of Christ and seen as righteous. And so no matter what physical battles um, that we will see, job loss, sickness, um, you know, uncertainty, uh, death in the family. I mean, there's so many things that you could see as a physical battle. Um, we have our ultimate hope and assurance that this life is temporary and that Christ has atoned for our sins and we will one day be sitting with him at the table feasting um, in an eternal communion with, with him. joining us on another episode of to the choir master we'd like to end with a question for reflection and this time again it'll be on a line that we weren't able to unpack as fully in this episode and it's in the bridge that line you shine in the shadow um i, I think it's an interesting line especially coupled with the comment i read off at the beginning about you're about to shine you know so speaking to us and so you see a juxtaposition here of Who's doing the shining and who's who is uh, the the light? I guess there that's that's mm. shining in the shadows. So my question for reflection would be, what does it look like for God to shine in the shadows? And that'd be something interesting, I think, to talk about and discuss, and uh, maybe see if there's other scriptural references on how to put that all together. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great question, and 
Uh, definitely a good one to unpack. Uh, thank you for joining us on another episode of To the Choir Master. Um, every week we look at songs that we are singing on Sunday mornings. Um, songs like Battle Belongs by Phil Wickham, other songs by uh, Bethel Elevation, Hillsong, and maybe some more unknown um, songs by, by smaller community churches in the area, and then our favorite um, good old-fashioned hymns. So we look at kind of everything on the spectrum to analyze the heart posture behind our musical worship. And then every other Thursday we do uh, what we like to call grace notes, which is look at other elements of worship, both musical um, and, and maybe the liturgy of our life and how we worship and really look at the heart posture behind that of how Christ can ultimately receive the glory he is due in our liturgies and our musical worship. So if you like what you're hearing so far, um, go back and check out some other episodes we've done in the past and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts to hear some future episodes of To the Choir Master. <laughs>